When you become a widow, the heartache can be overwhelming. You feel lost, you feel broken, you feel alone, and sometimes you feel like the pain will never go away. I believe that every widow has the capacity to endure, the power to overcome, and the determination to create a new life filled with meaning and purpose. That's why I wanted to create a show called Widow 180. People tell me they come here for the positivity. They listen to Widow 180, the podcast, to be inspired. They come to Widow 180 to be reminded that they have options, that the pain of loss is not a life sentence. Widow 180 is about turning tragedy, loss, and fear into strength, creativity, and a new passion for life. My mission each week is to arm you with these powerful stories of transformation and knowledge so that you can navigate life after loss. I'm Jen Zwink. I'm so glad you're listening. Let's get to the episode. This podcast episode is sponsored by the Widow Connection Community, a membership community where widows come together to unite on a path of self-discovery, build friendships, and inspire healing after loss. There's so much power when you surround yourself by people who 100% understand what you're going through, who are positive and supportive in every way. Are you ready to open up your heart and explore what's possible for you in this next chapter of life? Are you ready to step into a new version of yourself, a fearless version of you who is ready to live the highest, truest expression of herself? Are you ready to push past the grief that weighs on you and makes you feel lost and tired and alone? Are you ready to explore different ways of healing? If so, this is where you need to be. This is the space in which you will thrive. Join us on our group coaching sessions every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You belong here. You are welcome here. Let's do this together. Get more information and sign up at www.widow180.com forward slash membership. That's www.widow180.com forward slash membership. Good morning, everyone. You are going to love my guest this week on the podcast. I want to welcome Kara Hope Clark to the show. She is an award-winning author, a mom, an artist, also a widow, and a nature lover. After losing her husband, Claude, to suicide, she went through a season of deep grief. She wrote the Amazon number one bestseller, Widow's Moon, that talks about embracing the power of grief and using it as a catalyst for spiritual growth and personal transformation. This book is great, you guys. Thank you so much, Hope, for being here today. It's so great to be here, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Such a I'm great so excited to talk to you. This yeah, is so great. <laughs> I've been reading your book all week and I love it. So tell Thank us, you. we're going to start with kind of more toward the beginning of the story, but tell us a little bit about how you met Claude. Oh, tell us a little bit how you met Claude. Okay. So it was um, back in 1994, I was living in San Francisco. I was a massage therapist at the time. And Claude had just moved to the city from Half Moon Bay and he had had a small car accident and he ended up being my, I had worked on him for a few weeks and I didn't really like him very much. And uh, it was just, yeah, I just found him to be a little annoying and um, I don't know. It just, I didn't feel anything towards him at all other than kind of annoyance. <laughs> and then one day he just asked me out of the blue, if I wanted to join him sailing with some friends, um, at San, in San Francisco on Thursday. 
And I was really hesitant. Like, what is he asking me on a date? I didn't know what he was proposing, you know? Um, and I didn't even answer him. I felt so uncomfortable. I didn't even give him the courtesy of an answer. So um, I don't know why. I just couldn't for some reason. And so it was quite embarrassing, but I just kept thinking about it for those two days. So this was on a Thursday and felt like I was called to go. I felt like I needed to call him. I felt like I needed to participate. And so I got up my courage and my nerve to call him and he was day and he's counting all the people. It's like, okay, well, how many people do I have on the boat? He's counting, stalling, trying to decide if he really wanted me to go, I think. And um, finally he said, yeah, there's, there's still room if you want to come. And so I showed up on Saturday and got to meet his friends and I got to see a whole different side to him. You know, it was truly like a transformation when he's on the boat. And I realized later that that was his power spot. You know, he just loved it so much. And so I got to see that and a very different person that I saw when he came in for his massages and he was so patient and loving and gentle with everybody that didn't know anything about sailing. And he was funny and smart and, I'm like, well, man, as the day progressed, I'm like, I really like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and towards the end of the day, he invited everybody to go out for Thai food afterwards. And I secretly hoped that everybody would say no. So, and sure enough, everybody said no. And we got to have a nice dinner together and it just flowed so easily. And it felt amazing. And um, afterwards he invited me up for tea to his apartment. It was all quite innocent we just had tea and talked for another several hours. I think it was one o'clock in the morning. And I said, you know, I need to get home. I lived on the other side of the city and um, I couldn't sleep most of the night. And um, this possibility of, you know, in us. And so I wanted to call him the next day, but I didn't, but I sent him a thank you note. And he was very impressed by that. And we had our first date that following Saturday and on Mount Tamalpais over in Marin County, he said to me, I have to warn you. And I'm like, what is it going to be another man that doesn't want to commit? You know, but it was quite the opposite. He said, I want, I have to warn you if we're going to do this, it's going to be the whole nine yards, the pick a fence, the kids, the everything marriage. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? That's crazy. So, wow. um, so oddly enough, it felt right to me. So I said, yeah, I'm in, let's do it. Wow. <laughs> and we got married a year later, exactly to wow. that day. So yeah, crazy. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> so you guys <clears throat> ended up moving to Memphis for work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said his business was pretty stressful. Right. When did you start to notice a change in him? Like you said, he was kind of becoming a different person and stress was getting to him. Well, I think it was over several years. Um, I would say about six years into owning the business and to sell the business, but couldn't find an option that would give us the same level of um, income that he was accustomed to and wanted to maintain for the family. Um, So he kept trying to recommit to the business and tried all these different other ways to feel satisfied with it and to feel excited about it. Yeah. And so I saw him do that over and over again over the next several years. Happiness, the not having sailing in his life, um, just various other things just created a situation where I think his emotional well-being, his physical health started to go downhill. And well, so then he started with sleeping medications and anti-anxiety medications, 
depression medications and various other things. Um, so it was very gradual over many years, but the worst was probably about eight to 10 months before his death, um, where he was clearly very sick physically and emotionally. Um, <clears throat> and there were even more medications piled in to the okay. mix and which really contributed, I think also to his downfall and losing touch with reality and, um, becoming very delusional and very depressed and very, very difficult to see him slide because normally he was a very person that could figure out an answer to everything. And he was a very powerful person and yeah. always found a solution, but he couldn't. So this was, you said about eight months before you're sitting here watching him struggle. And so what were you, I mean, what can you do as you're watching your partner kind of disintegrate like that? You know, how, what is, what is somebody supposed to do? I guess, you know, didn't, I know you felt like powerless, like what is going on? What can you do? Yeah, I know. I don't, I tried my best. I tried to look at alternative things that he could do. Um, Even just basic things like changing his diet because he had Crohn's disease also. And he had a lot of physical pain. Um, I, we didn't have a lot of practitioners to choose from. I'm sure there's a lot more now, but, um, and he wasn't willing to change his diet. He wasn't willing to like go on that path because he didn't have faith in it the way I did. Okay. We're very different in that regard. And so that made it even harder for me because I felt like perhaps there might be some alternatives that yeah. he could try, but he wasn't willing to do that. Yeah. Um, you told me that at one so, point he even said to you, I feel like I'm preparing to die that he, and he was in like some sort of grip that had him. So no matter what you said to him or did, or tried to do, it just didn't matter at that point. Right. So this was, you know, maybe a month or two before he died that he was really in a delusional state. I mean, literally in a delusional state, he was, there were some things that needed to be changed, but nothing catastrophic. But in his mind, it was catastrophic. Everything mm-hmm. was catastrophic and unfixable. So um, no matter who he talked to, his business consultants, his lawyers, his accountants, all his people that he t- turned to, or me, he couldn't hear what the truth was. And that was extremely frightening and, and made me feel helpless. And yeah. um, when he came back from the Mayo Clinic and he decided he wanted to go to the Mayo Clinic and get a full workup there in case there was something that any of the doctors in Memphis missed, they all pretty much said the same thing. But he came home from that completely and utterly distressed and discouraged and hopeless. And he said to me, and I didn't know if that was a true thing. Like, is he really preparing to die? Wait, the Zoom kind of, the Zoom kind of skipped. What did he say to you? So he said, I feel like I'm preparing to die. And he had tears in his eyes and he was just feeling so distressed. And that was unusual for him to, to be able to get to that place of vulnerability. Um, What did they tell him at the Mayo Clinic? Why did he come back so upset? He was concerned that he could have, um, oh gosh, I can't remember what they said exactly, but there was something else, another piece that he thought perhaps could be a, a problem for him. Oh, I'm blanking okay. out on what they called it. I apologize. Okay. But um, it just added 
to the, it added up to the heap of what was wrong and what could not be fixed and everything was doom and gloom and, you know, right. and utter failure. He felt like a complete and utter failure. He felt hundred percent shame and, um, nobody could say anything. Honestly, I literally spent hours with him sitting with him, holding his hand those last few weeks of his life, just trying to help him see it from a new perspective, but yeah. it just wasn't happening. Just nothing. So yeah, nothing. So what, tell us what happened to Claude. So, um, with all the stress of everything going on in the business, you know, as I said, everything kind of went downhill over those last few weeks. And eventually he, um, I came home one day, we had talked on the phone about an hour before that. And it was a very, very hard day for him. And he had actually seen a new therapist that day. Um, so the therapist felt pretty bad when she found out what happened afterwards. Oh, oh my God. Um, hung himself in our attic that particular day. And I came home and I found him. And um, that's what started me on this whole journey Yeah, that, on, that I've been on. And it's been 10 years. It was on April 19th, 2012. So it'll be 10 year anniversary in April. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> you, you told me you didn't think that he would really do it because- you guys had talked about it. Like you guys had talked about. Yeah. He was terrified of dying. Absolutely terrified of dying. Yeah. Um, and he said he, he was, this is the word he used. He, I'm too chicken to do it is what he said. That was the phrase he used. Cause I said, you better not, you better not kill yourself. Yeah. (laughs) You better not. But he did. So, um, he was just and, in that grip of whatever it was that yes. was holding him. And I, you know, we, I've talked to other widows of suicide and we talk about like the suicide prevention and, and, you know, how I feel like it's just like, if somebody is that deep in that grip, there's just no coming out of it, or there's not anything that you can do as the wife. I mean, you did everything that you were supposed to do. That's what's really hard because as your partner, you want to do everything you can, you know, yeah. to support them and to help them and to save them. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, at that point, once from my experience, once there's nothing I could do, even though I tried and right. I'm sure that there is a certain point within people's lives in which they can be turned, you know, their um, perspective can be turned around, but he wasn't one of those people. Yeah. So how old was Noah at he was that 14. time? He was 14. He was 14. And he, he, was, he was aware of everything that was going on with his dad because he had seen the changes happening too. You told me that by the time his dad passed away, that for the several months before that, he really wasn't a da- acting like a dad anymore. Yeah, so you said that that kind of helped. Himself. It kind of helped <laughs> Noah prepare for the loss. Right helped him prepare to not have his dad present anymore because his dad had disappeared basically months before that. Yeah. So, so what happened with, in the immediate aftermath of that, you had all of the grief that you were dealing with, but then also Claude's business and having to take over that and make all of those decisions. How did you handle all of that? So I was really fortunate that I had a team of people helping me that Claude had set up years ago before he was ill. Um, if anything were to happen to him, I would with the business transition and 
um, help me with financial stuff and, you know, just everything that was going to have to happen as far as the estate and things like that. So thank God I had that in place. Thank Claude. I had that in place really seriously was a major help, but at the same time, of course, it's still so much to go through and a lot of decisions at a time when I'm completely broken, you know, yeah, just have to keep moving forward every day. I know you on top of all of the business things that you had to take on, you had a lot of trauma that you had suffered right? from what happened and how you found him and how did you manage or cope with that part of it? All of the trauma that you went through. So it's still an ongoing thing. I'm still dealing with it, honestly, even though I've, I have worked with trauma and healing at all different levels. Um, but I still, it's still, my nervous system is still not healed from it. But, um, at the time I did what I felt called to do intuitively. And I, um, would just go to that room and just stand outside of the room for short periods of time over and over again, just to kind of desensitize on it too. I, cause it was part of my house. I felt like, okay, this is my house. I need to reclaim this space. And, um, and it was also right outside of my, my art studio. It was one of the doors that was like basically in the room that opened into the attic. And so I wanted to still have an art studio and I wanted to still live in that house for a little while. Cause it, I couldn't see us moving right away. There's no way I could do everything I could to reclaim that space, reclaim the house. Um, I did a lot of ceremony in that space, um, to clear the energy. And I had other people come in to clear the energy <clears throat> Um, excuse me. And then I also, I screamed a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I literally just let my scream myself scream for months. Anytime I needed, um, I even set up a place in the back, in my, uh, walk-in closet in the back of the house where I thought nobody could hear me. I put a little stool in there and I just let myself scream Yeah, because the horror was, was so embedded in me Yeah, from finding him. And while I was standing there in front of him, after about 30 seconds, I heard, <clears throat> you need to stop screaming. Noah cannot see this or, you know, do whatever somebody else might've done. I, I knew I was, I needed to get out of there. Years later, I felt like it was Claude telling me that Oh, okay. Claude was fiercely protective of Noah and Noah had no, if he weren't in the shower, he would have heard me and came up, you know, and he would have yeah. been part of that. Um, yes. So I had to, I felt like I needed to go back to that space and time over and over and over again Okay. to help heal the part of me that wasn't able to do whatever I would have maybe done if I had had this time and space to just be there in that moment, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, when we were talking about it's a that long t- answer, cause it's yeah. a big thing. <laughs> no, that's, I know that's, yeah, that's what we want to hear though. I mean, okay. how it's such a traumatic experience. How did you get through it? You know, and a a lot of people really, really struggle, um, with dealing with trauma. It's, it's just one of those things that it doesn't, it doesn't go away (laughs) very quickly. Yeah. You just have to orient yourself to the experience. I think, yes, at least that's what I've had to do. I would like to invite you to get our latest freebie designed just for you. How to get your life back together after loss. A 10-step checklist. 
After countless hours of research, interviewing hundreds of widows, and through my own experience with grief, I have compiled this list of the 10 steps you need to take to put your life back together after losing a loved one. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and also normal to not know where to start when it comes to picking up the pieces of your shattered world. Here's where you start. You can get this free 10-step checklist at www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. Now, I want to talk about something that I also hear a little bit about. Um, it's like this sense of relief that you felt after what happened, that you didn't have to worry about it anymore. And I know it's very common, but a lot of people feel guilty about that feeling of relief. Did you feel guilty? I didn't feel, I don't think I did. Um, I felt relief immediately when I was walking away from finding him, when I was walking to call the police, I remember vividly feeling my whole body felt a sense of relief, even though I was in shock and I was almost a calm feeling that came over me like, Oh, thank God, because it's over. The worst thing that I thought could happen is done. It's happened. And I know that might sound crazy, but it was so horrible to go through. And so at least that part was done. Of course, I had no idea what was ahead for me um, in that moment, of course, but for the most part, I don't, I felt like it was kind of a normal response, honestly. That, that relief, yeah. I have, yeah. I've heard that from a lot of different <clears throat> widows that I, I've, I've talked yeah. to. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot to carry. It's a lot to hold. You had been your partner. You, yes. You had been right there alongside him, that whole journey of months and even years of watching this decline. So it's like, right. yeah, you know, yeah. That feeling of, I don't have to do this anymore, or he doesn't have to suffer anymore or just right. something yes. like that kind yes. of feeling, you know, like yeah, he's, there too. he's not struggling anymore, you know? Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how long did you stay in, in that house in Memphis after? So we were there for two years. I was prepared to be there until Noah finished high school. Um, when, when he, when Claude died, he was in eighth grade. So we were there for two years on Thanksgiving, he came, Noah came to me and said, mom, I'm done with Memphis. I think it's time to move. I'm like, what? (laughs) I just kind of decided, okay, we're going to live here because none of us had ever been happy. I mean, Claude and I were not happy living there. So, um, but I'd resigned myself to, okay, we'll stay here at least until Noah's done with high school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to disrupt all of that because he was actually doing well with school. And um, so I was shocked when he said that to me. But it didn't take long for him to convince me that it was the right thing to do. You know, within an yeah, hour, you, we had, you were we had, both ready. Okay, what are we going to do? And so over the next few weeks, we looked at different options. And um, the best fit for us was Boulder, Colorado. We had some really good, good friends that were living in Denver. My sister was living in Southern Colorado at the time. And just culturally and all the nature, it was a good fit for us. So um by awesome. January. So you ended up in Boulder yeah. and then yeah. you stayed for like seven years, right? You guys seven were there years, for a while. Yeah. You said while you were in Boulder, you kept getting these whispers kind of to help others. And so what do you feel like you were being called to do? So not long after I moved to Boulder, I started hearing 
we want you to write a book. So I'm very connected with my guides, my angels and my higher self. I've kind of worked with that for a number of years. Um, and I'm used to following my inner guidance when it's time to move or make big changes. So I heard, I like you to write a book. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, guys. I don't know how to write. There's no way I can't write a book. And so, um, I just sort of listened and I didn't act on it because there was for a couple of years after I moved to Boulder and worked with a lot of new practitioners and needed to continue healing. I was still grieving at that point, yeah. even though it was two years later, you know? And so I was focusing on me still and just really healing myself, but it didn't go away. <laughs> they kept saying, we still want you to write a book. And so I think it might've been maybe a couple of years later. I heard, okay, start with a blog. And then I started mm. feeling more comfortable with writing and I developed my own voice, my writing voice. And it's like, wow, this is kind of cool. Actually, I do know how to write. And yeah. um, clearly I was being guided though. I felt like Claude was there with me. He wanted to write a book. That was one of his big goals in life. Mm, so cool. I feel like, well, maybe he was, you know, I feel certain that he was one of the guides, you know, right. in the book and my angels. And um, so it wasn't all me, but I was, you know, I still, and I did the blog for a couple of years and then I just needed a break. It felt like almost too much. And, um, I don't know, it might've been a year later that I heard the call to write a book again. It's like, okay, we still want you to write a book. And, um, right around that time, I, in my email, I saw this book writing course online book writing. And so I decided to it was the perfect timing, you know, it's like, okay, I guess this is my call to do that. So I signed up for the course and I spent about a year working on my first draft and just putting that all together. Cause that was a huge project and, um, major, but by the end of it, I'm like, oh, man, this, this is so stressful. And it's reactive reactivating all my trauma and detail of everything that had happened. And I'm like, is it really worth it? Do I really want to do this to myself? I know because writing, they journaling, you know, you always hear about journaling, writing, it's all very therapeutic, but you're writing your story and you're having to relive everything all over again. Do you, do you feel like that was helpful or was it? No, it wasn't bringing you back. Like for me, journaling is it. That's where it's like, you can purge your, you know, that's what's therapeutic, but writing a book is, and that's for me, not therapeutic at all, because you're writing a book for others. I was writing this for other people. I wasn't writing this for, for me. This was, a, a, you know, so with that, it's, it was like a calling, definitely yeah. a calling to do this. So I had to really get in deep, you know, and really be yes. Um, yes. upfront with everything that happened and also write it in a, in a good way. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it takes a lot of energy to do that. Yes. And anyway, so, so it took you a couple of years to write the book, right? Total. It probably took me a couple of years. Um, when I decided to get back into it after that pause, it was probably about a year. Um, I heard again, why don't you just kind of contact an editor and just see if what you've written is worth finishing? Why not just go for it? It was kind of that kind of energy, you know, like, okay, kind of, and I did that. And the editor said, yeah, she thought it would really help people. And so that what's that's, that was in, um, 2019, early 2019, I committed to doing that. I committed to, 
Because otherwise I would have wondered my whole life, what would have happened had I not done it? Because this was like my soul, a soul agreement to do this book. Right. Right. So I really dove in. I shut everybody out and luckily it was during COVID. So it was a and it was amazing how perfect the timing was. Perfect you know? timing. As it always is. Always things work out that way. So, so tell tell us what's the name of the book and then why did you name it Widow's Moon? It's Widow's yeah, Moon. So it's Widow's Moon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Widow's Moon. <laughs> but tell us about the name. You know, sitting down and brainstorming titles and writing different things and nothing felt right. And this one day, you know, I did all this stuff about the moon, different titles that related to the moon and widow and somehow widow's moon came. I'm like, oh my God, I think that's it. And then as I sat with it, see of that title, um, and I wrote something about that in my introduction. So I'll read that to you. Yeah. So some native American tribes associate distinctive seasonal or energetic characteristics with the moon leading to the symbolic naming of each moon. For example, the growing moon or pink moon in April carries the emergence of the varied pink flowers. Widow's moon embraces that tradition. This, this moon phase honors the divine feminine. In addition, it encompasses a potent invitation asking us to harness the power of grief as a catalyst for awakening. It's a full potency to redefine who we are and who we have come to be in this present incarnation. So, that last part is what I came up with my meaning of widow's moon. Um, Cause it is this potent time. I mean, this incredible path that we step on as widows and um, so important to honor that yeah. as a period of transformation. It's a season of growth. I mean, if we can allow it to be, I mean, it's so powerful. It's so, it's so true. And in, um, every chapter, just to let everybody know. So there's, you know, chapter seven, clarity, and then surrender and courage and trust and intuition. So you've named each chapter. Chapter 14 is a chapter about adaptation. And so you talk about this period of contemplation and all of the changes that you had been through. And so, um, in the book, it's, it's how, Nature doesn't resist the cycles of change. So you say, let's think for a moment. Do the leaves on the trees resist letting go? Do the flowers resist blooming? Do the grasses resist turning brown and moving freely in the blustering wind? In fact, the only thing nature does resist is stagnation or lack of change. All things are in flux. Yet as humans, our inclination is to cling to the known each time we are presented with ever foreboding change. And I think this is such an important aspect yes. when we talk about grief is how we can adjust to changes, all of the changes that happen in our life. Right, right. So do you feel like now after everything that you've been through that you adapt more easily to change? I think overall... And if you know anything about being a Taurus, it's a lot of fixed energy. And so change does not come easily for a Taurus. Um, and I have a lot of fixed energy in my astrological chart. But overall, I think that um, because I have experienced so much change in my life in the last 10 years have been a major immersion in change, that I have a greater understanding about what that means in life and that change is not 
kind of excited about because change leads us to a whole new place that we in this moment can't even imagine. So it can be a really exciting thing. It's just not always easy and it's scary, you know, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) challenges us. It does. Yes. (laughs) When did you end up taking off your ring? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I, I was signed up for a workshop, a process painting workshop in, in, uh, Taos, New Mexico, the, the fall after Claude died, I had, I had done it the previous year. Um, and then I had signed up and some, and I, that question kept coming to me those first few months, like, when do I take my ring off? What do I do? Is there a protocol? I guess it's just a personal thing. I'm just thinking all out loud here, but, um, before I went to New Mexico, I used to live in Santa Fe, so I was familiar with the area. And plus I had been there the year before. And so I knew that there were lots of options to jewelry there, Native American jewelry, which um, I thought this would be a great time. I will take my ring off and I can find another one to put on to re- to because ha- I felt like I wasn't ready to have this empty spot on my finger. So I thought, okay, this can be like a power ring. You know, this can be a ring that's helping me realize, okay, this can be an empowering move for me. So what is your ring? What what ring did you get? So I don't have it with me. Uh (laughs) It's a turquoise ring. I actually got two rings. Okay. It took me all day. I went to all the different shops in the Taos Plaza. (laughs) I literally went to every single one. I couldn't find one that felt right. And finally, at the end of the day, I was completely wanting to give up. Like, oh, forget about my, I mean forget about my quest here, which is not happening. Um, but then I went into this one ring shop or jewelry and, um, gift shop, but, um, I got two rings and, um, okay. I did wear them for a while. I, I would, you know, sometimes I'd wear one, sometimes I'd wear the other. So I like that. Okay. Yeah. And I love turquoise yeah, cool. too. Yeah. I love turquoise. Too. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what my final question then is, What's one piece of advice that you can give to new widows? But if you have a couple of suggestions, we'll take a couple of different suggestions. There's so many. That's why I wrote a book. (laughs) I mean, so we will, we'll take a couple. (laughs) And we've already kind of touched on some of this stuff, but, um, okay. I'm just going to read these. Sure. Please consider yourself and honor all that you are undertaking as you traverse this transformational path. On the surface, it may not seem natural or personal growth, yet I have found that it can be just that. It takes time, compassion, courage, strength, determination, patience, and perseverance to keep moving through the emotional quagmire of grief. There is no destination. Your healing process can lead you to a higher awareness of who you are beyond your pain. Take one day at a time, one breath at a time, and be loving and gentle with yourself. Remember, this too shall pass. That was one of my mother's favorite yeah. uh, saying to that. That's just so beautiful. Yeah. This is I love a that. passage that came to me that channels through me. Um, let's imagine for a moment, if you can, that this is a deep dive into the pool of surrender. We need to give ourselves over to this experience fully and completely. It is what our souls require. The soul will accept no less than our complete and total commitment to allowing grief to have its way with us. 
if you can allow complete surrender to the pain, trusting that you will come out the other side and what you will find is up to you. It will vary by person, but one thing is for sure, you will come out anew. The waves of emotions will tumble all the rough surfaces into a smooth, flowing, beautiful stone that can be taken with you as you. What you will find is that it is all perfect and in direct alignment with spirit and your soul's divine blueprint. From where you stand right now, it may not seem that way. You may be in total darkness and despair, but that too is part of this journey. You can't have the light without the dark. They exist side by side. They are one. You will have many opportunities to dwell in both as you pass through the with you. All things must, must pass, one flowing into the other. So take heart. When you are in the depths of despair, seeing no way out, just wait and be patient. This too shall pass and cycle into joy once more. There's that, this too oh. shall pass. <laughs> I know it's so true. Yeah. The the part about surrender. Yeah. Surrender to it. You know, um, that is beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So in the book, there's also these illustrations and you have affirmations Mm -hmm. at the end of each chapter. It's really, it's really an awesome book. You guys, I'm going to hold it up for anybody watching on, uh, YouTube, but it's a widow's moon is the name of the book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hope I'm calling you hope, but it's Kara hope Clark is the name on the book. So that's how you can find it. Can you tell everyone where we can find the book and then on your website or anything like that? Yeah. So, um, if you go to karahopeclark.com or widowsmoon.com, there is a menu at the top and it says widow's moon, the book, and you can click on that link and it'll bring you to a link for Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, it's after, after you buy, there'll be a, um, a receipt that you can access. And then there are some free gifts that you can come back to the website and access some free gifts my, from some friends that offered some gifts. And also there's two gifts for me. One is um, printouts of those affirmations and cards that are at the end of each chapter. So you can do an actual printout and have them and cut them up and kind of use them at your altar. If you want to prayer time reminds me, the other, uh, gift is, um, infant, more information about creating grief altars and more ceremony around processing your grief. So it's really potent, really great gifts. So once you order the book, you can go back to the website and put in your email and your, um, information that there's a number that they'll give you on Amazon. And then you can download wow. the gifts. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I like it too. Very cool. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I love talking to you. I love this book. Um, Thank you. I thank you again so much for, uh, for joining us today and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. Here are the takeaways from hope. Number one, Hope noticed a change in her husband, Claude, after the family moved to Memphis and his business became more stressful. Number two, Claude was not doing well physically or emotionally. He started taking sleeping pills and anti-anxiety meds and antidepressants. Number three, Claude went to the Mayo Clinic to get a full workup and returned feeling so distressed and he told Hope, I feel like I'm preparing to die. Number four, on April 19th, 2012, 
Hope came home and found Claude. He had hung himself in their attic. Number five. Their son Noah was 14 at the time. He had watched his dad decline over the several months before that, so that sort of helped him prepare for what had happened. Number six. Hope said to heal the trauma, she had to reclaim that space in her home and clear the energy. She also screamed a lot, and actually she set up a space in her closet where she could go just to scream and release the pain. Number seven, Hope felt a calm feeling come over her and a sense of relief after finding Claude because the worst had happened. She had been carrying his suffering for years. Number eight. Hope felt a calling to write a book about her experience. Her book is called Widow's Moon, and it's available on her website and on Amazon, and I'll put those links in the show notes today. Number nine, she says in her book that we can harness the power of grief as a catalyst for awakening, and that this is a season of growth and transformation, and it's important to honor that. Number 10, Change leads us to this whole new place that we, in this moment, can't even imagine. Change is not always easy, and it's scary. It challenges us. Number 11, words of advice and encouragement for other widows. This too shall pass. So if you would like to get your copy of Widow's Moon, you can go to carahopeclark.com or widowsmoon.com and purchase the book there. That's Kara Hope Clark. It's C-A-R-A-H-O-P-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. I'll put the link to those in the show notes today. And to everyone listening today, I just want to say thank you so much for the feedback that I've been getting lately. I'm so happy to see that you're sharing the podcast and that more and more widows are able to hear these stories and messages of hope. Please keep it up. I love that you're sharing it. And please tell other widows about the podcast. Also, I have a really cool program coming up soon, and I wanted to let you guys know about it. I'm going to have a lot more details in the weeks to come. But I'm putting together this program that's all about finding purpose in life again. And this is something that I really struggled with, too, after Brent was killed. I kind of felt like, what's my purpose? What's the purpose of life? What does my life mean now? And if you're kind of feeling lost like that with no direction, I absolutely get it. If you want to rediscover yourself again and find meaning in life again. This is a four-week program. We're going to meet once a week via Zoom and we'll be doing some activities and group exercises. This is going to be really fun. Why? Because it's all about you and helping you get a clear vision of what you want in life and what you want to do with the rest of your precious days here on earth. And I want to help you figure that out and get you going on this new and exciting path. If you're interested, you can check out the details at www.widow180.com forward slash purpose. That's www.widow180.com forward slash purpose. And you can get all the details in the Facebook group. That's the Widow 180 community if you're not already in there. You can also DM me and email me at jen at widow180.com if you have any questions at all. Okay, have a great weekend. Until next week, believe in the possibilities.
Thank you so much for listening to Widow 180, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you're seeking daily inspiration and guidance, you can follow me on Facebook at Widow 180, the community, on YouTube at Widow 180, the channel, and on Instagram at Widow 180. If you're interested in more grief and widowhood resources, including our latest freebie, How to Get Your Life Back Together After Loss, a 10-step checklist, head over to www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie.